Um, we've been discussing freedom for the past few weeks. And what I said is uh, freedom is the, the theme of Galatians 5, but that's not isolated. It's also the theme of the entire book of Galatians. And if you could sum up the word uh, Galatians as a book in one word, it would be that word, the word freedom. But more, even more than that, that um, freedom is the, the meta narrative of the entire Bible. It's the, it's the big picture. It's the big story that, that God is telling that's, that's happening in real life in his creation. It is the, the, the story of slavery and of freedom. In fact, that's what we're going to be looking at next year. Give you a little preview. Next year in the second week um, of January, we're going to start in Genesis, the first chapter in the first verse. And about this time next year, at the very end, um, in December, we're going to end in Revelation, the 22nd chapter in um, whatever it is, like the 21st verse. We're going to end there. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to preach the storyline, the meta narrative of the Bible. We're not going to be able to hit every book of the Bible, but we're going to hit the, the high points. And we're showing that God is telling one story, that the Bible isn't just um, 66, it is 66 books, but it's not 66 books telling 66 different stories. It is actually one book sewn together through 66 books, all of which are telling one story. And that story is the story of a God who creates, but through man's rebellion and man's sin, we fall into slavery. And then how God rescues us from slavery and sets us three free for that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live as a redeemer, to live in our place, and Christ redeems us. And that's what we're gonna be, gonna be looking at. We're gonna see that even though God has created us, but it's in sin that we've fallen into slavery. In fact, if you're new to Christianity, I know that we use uh, some different language and some words that are maybe antiquated, old, biblical, as you go like, what are you talking about? Like even the word salvation, that's not a word probably used very much outside of church, but what does salvation mean? Well, salvation means this, it means freedom. That's exactly what it means. It means freedom. And slavery is, is sin. That's what sin is. It's the fallen human condition that every one of us, we have been born post-Adam. We have been born slaves and we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to ourself, which Paul calls the flesh in this text. We are, sin, we are slaves under the control of Satan and this world. Sin, self, and Satan, they exercise an almost unbreakable tyranny over our lives. And it is only when a person turns to Christ that you are set free from that. But... To experience freedom, you must know not just what you have been freed from, not just that you've been freed from Satan and self and sin and all of those things, but you almost must, you must also know what you've been freed to. That freedom isn't just the absence of slavery, but freedom is the, the presence of something. It's, the, it's, the, it's living in an environment, living in a culture, living in a world of freedom that every person has been born in bondage, but every person has been created for freedom. Throughout this series, um, whenever I was preaching in the other two weeks, we've taken a two week break from that, but we've been talking about freedom facts. And these are truths that I kind of want to hang the, the, the framework of the whole sermon series on. And one of those freedom facts is this, that you will never live free until you know the environment for which you have been made. Let me illustrate it like this. Imagine you 
are going for a walk, you're on one of the nature walks and you walk upon a, a, a lake or a pond or a stream and they're standing on the, the edge of that lake is a, is a little boy and that little boy's fishing and that little boy's uh, catching a fish like one right after another. Like, have you, ever, have you ever been there? Have you ever gone fishing and you caught one fish right after another fish after another? And some of you are like, yeah, yeah. And so this is what this little boy's doing. He's catching these fish, but then as he takes the fish off the hook, he throws the fish up on the bank and then he throws out and catches another one, throws that fish up on the bank and the the fish are flopping and flailing around onto the bank and you come up on the little boy and he's got a pile of fish there and you say to the little boy, little boy, what are you doing? And the little boy says, I'm setting these fish free. And you look and they're flopping and flailing around on the ground. But wouldn't you say to the little boy, like, hey, that's not freedom for the fish. You're not setting the fish free. You're killing the fish because you're taking the fish out of the environment for which they have been created. And you're putting them in a new and different environment. That a fish is only free as long as it's in the water, as long as it's in the environment for which it has been made. Or another illustration, maybe like this one. A train is only free as long as it's on the tracks. A derailed train, a train that is free from its tracks, isn't a free train. It's an accident waiting to happen. It's in danger to itself and to others. It's it's heading and barreling down a path and it may look free, but a train is only free when it is on its tracks in the environment the environment for which you have been created. Just like a fish has been made for water, just like a train has been made to run on the tracks, the environment in which you have been created is an environment of fellowship with God, your creator. It's an environment of mutual love and acceptance and peace and confidence and friendship with God. We've been created to turn out in love towards God and towards, uh, towards others. We've been, we've been made to turn out towards the, the, the creation in which God has created. We've been made to turn out toward those things. That's, what, that's the environment that we've been made in. That's what freedom is for us as human beings. But sin has wrecked every bit of that. The sin in Genesis 3 wrecked all of that. Instead of us being born into fellowship with God, our creator, we've been born at enmity and strife with God. Instead of us being born as objects of God's delight, we are born as objects of God's wrath. Instead of us turning outward towards others in service and love, we turn inward towards self. Instead of us turning out in meaningful work to cultivate the earth's resources in order to use it for human flourishing, we abuse that and we turn out towards either laziness or we turn out towards abuse or idolatry. And the environment in which you have been made is something very different than what you is natural to you. That is what you're born into, like a fish that would be born on the the land, like a train that would be made apart from the tracks. That's what you've been born into, but that's not what you've been created for. That's not the place where you will thrive the most and you will flourish the most. The place where you will thrive and flourish the most the place that's like a fish in the water and a locomotive running on a tracks, it's an environment made possible by Jesus through his shed blood and finished work, your faith in that. And it is also a place that is experienced through the Holy Spirit. 
The place of freedom is you living in the environment for which you have been created. That place has been opened up for you. It's made possible through the finished work of Jesus, but it is it, you, you can experience it in real life through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Spirit shows so, up so much in throughout chapter 5. Look at your text, if you would, for a few minutes. In verse 5, the Spirit shows up. In verses 16, in verse 17, in verse 18, the Spirit shows up. And again, in verse 25, it's almost as if it's bookended. Verse 5 and verse 25 is the work of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God is making our blood-bought freedom a reality in our lives. Freedom begins here. The environment with which you have been made begins here. It begins with confidence in God's personal and real love for you, of God's acceptance for you, of God's delight for you, and God's approval over you. That is the environment for which you have been made. You've been made to know God and to be known by God, to have a real fellowship, a real relationship, real intimacy with the God of the world, the thrice holy God, the creator and maker and your father. But here's the deal. You will never know intimacy with God apart from security in his love for you. Even though this is the way you've been created because of the fall, if you do not have security, assurance of God's real love for you, then you will never experience intimacy with God. In fact, that's what we see in verse number five. In verse number five, that's the whole point. Paul says, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I've talked about verse five like every week because it's key. It's, a, it's the hinge point in the text and I wanna make sure that we understand it. But he's saying through the spirit by faith. So it's something that has yet to occur. It's something that's gonna happen in the future, but we can experience it. It's something that we now are eagerly awaiting for this event in the future that ends in righteousness, but we are eagerly waiting for it. What do you eagerly wait for? Like some of you are eagerly waiting on, on Christmas and that would be the kids in the room that don't have to pay for Christmas, right? The adults, not so much, but the kids in the room, you're like, hey, we're eagerly waiting. In fact, we already purchased my, my youngest child, Safira. We've already purchased her, her gift. We're getting her a big girl bed and you can tell her because she knows, but she said, oh, you're not supposed to tell your gifts like you're, that's supposed to be a surprise. And that's so different than me, but it's like we ruined the surprise. She knows now what she's going to get, her big girl bed. And she's so excited about it. But now she no longer is eagerly waiting for something. It's already occurred. I remember when I was in the Boy Scouts, when I was a kid, and we'd come up on a camp out, a canoe trip, do something. And I couldn't sleep for like a week before that, I mean, literally the night before the camp out, I'd be laying in bed awake. I would be so excited eagerly waiting for something that was going to occur in the future. And what Paul's saying here is that you and I, as believers in Christ, we can eagerly await the moment that you and I will see God face to face. The moment when our righteousness becomes a reality. When God says to us, hey, come enter into your just reward. He's saying that's a moment in time that is going to occur in the future and that you and I, we can eagerly await it. Not 
with fear and trepidation. That's dread, not with dread. That's not eagerly waiting. That is with confidence and assurance. And how do we experience the confidence and assurance in this moment? Well, he says it's a work of the spirit. Well, how does that occur? What occurs like this, when you receive the spirit and as you receive the spirit, Paul says it this way in Romans, the fifth chapter, he says that uh, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What Paul is saying in verse number five is, he's saying live today like you will live in the future. That's important. Live today like you're gonna live in the future with the same assurance and confidence. Live today with the same security and assurance and confidence that you're gonna experience in the future when you see God face to face. Because the truth is today you are just as forgiven you were just as accepted. You were just as embraced. You were just as loved. You were just as received. You were just as adopted as you will be on the day that you see God face to face. Do you live like that? Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. This is God's real love for you. God's personal love that he has for you. It has been poured into your heart. It is flooded your heart is what he says. God's real and intimate love for you, love with your name written on it. I'm talking now about per, a personal love. I'm not talking about love in a generic sense. So John Piper last week, he, he tweeted this and uh, I'll, I'll apply it to my own life, but just so you know the source, it's not me, it's John Piper. But if you were to ask Luann, like Luann, do you does Andy love you? And if Luann wants to say, of course Andy loves me, he loves everybody, right? Like that wouldn't be very reassuring of a special kind of love between a husband and a wife. If Luann was to say, of course Andy loves me, he loves all women, like that's not very reassuring. But when she says, no, 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 Andy loves me, how do you know? Because it's a special and it's an intimate and it's a real and it's a personal kind of love. And what I'm saying is what Paul says in Romans chapter five is you can know that kind of love from a father poured out upon you. You can experience that real tangible love in your heart, your heart, your emotions can be flooded by God's personal, intimate, real love for you. If there's no assurance of God's love, there'll never be intimacy in your relationship with God. Some of you are like the old cartoon, or maybe you did it in real life, the, the child or the, the boyfriend with the daisy doing, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. And some of you live lives like that. Today, God must love me, and tomorrow he must not. And what are you basing that upon? You're not basing that upon pedals, you're pulling it off, but what you're basing it upon is you're basing it upon your obedience. You think God's love for you hinges on your obedience. Now, surely God's delight hinges on your obedience, but God's love doesn't hinge on your obedience. That God's, this is why many of us, we live cowering lives, fearful, in, in, in trepidation and in dread is for this reason right here, is we think that God's love for us is, 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 is uh, proven by our sanctification. Or here's how I'd written it up here, that God's love for us, the truth is God's love for us, it is evidenced by the Spirit's work of regeneration and adoption, not our work of sanctification. 
You need to chew on that for a little bit. God's love, his real personal intimate love for you, it is evidenced by your regeneration and your adoption into his family, not our work in sanctification. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. If I was Pastor Tony, I could have yellered that one for you all. That's what he said. There's a lot of folks here from Clark County last week. Kind of just saying. There was a lot of folks from Clark County. We could have highlighted that for you. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. See, regeneration isn't conversion. Again, that's a big word, regeneration. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the, it's the act of becoming born again. It, it's, a, it's a fundamental change in your disposition. That's what regeneration is. And it is a work of God that regenerates us. It's evidence of God's great love for us. We just saw that in Ephesians 4. It is the work that the Holy Spirit brings to make us alive to God and alive to the things of God. The regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit done in the soul of a human being. It is the implanting of new life. It's not conversion. Conversion is what you do. You you turn, that's conversion. You turn away from sin and you turn towards God, which also implies when you're turned towards sin, your back is towards God. But conversion happens because regeneration has occurred. An occurrence has happened in your heart, in your disposition that has changed you where now you are alive to God and alive to the things of God that you once were indifferent or apathetic or what the Bible says hostile. So you are apathetic at, at best and hostile at worst towards God and towards the things of God. But then a fundamental change happens in you where you now become alive to God and to the things of God to gathering together with the church and reading his word and singing to him how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? How does, it, how does it work? Well, Ephesians of Colossians both say that as the Spirit fills us, we sing. So before you stood there and then you get the Holy Spirit and the Spirit comes into your life and he regenerates you and makes you new. And now all of a sudden you find yourself like starting to sing and not just singing on Sundays, but when you're driving your dump truck around town, you got it on K-Love, right? You got it on some, you're listening to music, your melody is in your, fills your heart. Now, before you thought, study God's word. And now you're like, oh, study God's word. Okay, y'all, let's get into it. You think about prayer, like, why would I pray? Or you only prayed when you really, really needed something. You couldn't do it on your own. You know, it's outside of your reach, outside of your grasp. And then all of a sudden, a change happens in you. And now you want to pray. And now you want to read. And now you want to study. And now you want to gather together. And now ultimately all of those things, although they are very important, they all roll up and point upward toward God. You now care about God. You love God. Your enmity and your hostility has come to rest. And now as Paul says in in Romans 5, there's now peace with you. And some of you here in the room, you may say like, well, I've never lived like that. I've never lived apathetic to God or indifferent to the things of God or hostile to God. I've never lived like that. And if you say that, here's why. Because you've yet to be regenerate. That's why you would say that. Well, I've never been hostile toward the things of God or apathetic or indifferent. Then chances are you've yet to be regenerate and made new. You have nothing to compare it with. 
But I know for me, even though I got saved at age 14, I can remember 14 years of apathy and indifference. Now, there were times where I was interested in spiritual things. There were times where I got a new Bible and I got all excited about it. There were times when my, my parents took me to church and I was my grandfather preach and I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna try my best. I'm gonna do good. I'd even got my children's Bible story and told my neighbors about Jesus all pre being regenerate. But whenever the Holy Spirit opened up my heart, when he removed the, the, the heart of flesh and stone that was in me and implanted a new flesh, a new heart of flesh in me, heart that beats after God, good grief. That's something I never got over. Absolutely never got over. And so that's what regeneration is. And regeneration is evidence of God's love for you because of the great love that he's loved us with. Even when we were dead in our trespass, he made us alive and he's adopted us into our family. Listen, I hammer that point home because so many of us, we live with this orphan slave mentality in our heart. I saw it. I got to witness it in my, in my daughter. My, our, my, Luann and I, our youngest daughter, Safira, for those of you that may not know, then you probably don't follow us on, uh, in Facebook or haven't heard me preach but two times. So our youngest daughter is adopted and we adopted her from Haiti. The first time we got to go um, visit her, she was barely a year old. And she's like, you know, uh, she's like a, a, a baby, right? And she's 18 months old, I guess. And so she's like this scared little child. And we'd go and we'd have to, in the beginning, she would, she would run from us and she would, run to, she would run to her nannies, right? She would run to what was familiar. She would run from us, but then slowly but surely, you know, she'd run from us because she was unsure of our intentions for her. She was unsure of our love for her. But after two weeks, and it took us the first time two weeks of just, giving her treats and giving her things. And we'd show up in the morning and like at the end of the middle of, uh, in, into the past, the, into the second week, the middle of the second week, one day we showed up to the orphanage. We'd get there early in the morning. Usually we'd get there. She would see us. She'd take off running, crying, screaming. We got her on video. But then there was a week that we showed up and she was standing at the gate waiting on us. And there'd been a change in her heart. There'd be a change in her understanding. And the change was she was no longer cloudy about our intentions for her. She was no longer cloudy about our great love that we had for her. She understood that, hey, these, these white folks, they love me and their intentions are good for me and I can trust them. And listen, that's, I think that's why so many of us, we fall back into slavery, we fall back into fear we fall back into the flesh. We fall back to those things. It's because we're still cloudy about God's intention for us. We're still cloudy about God's love for us. And most of us is because we think that God's love is based upon our cooperation and sanctification and, not, and God's evidence by God's great love that he has for us even when we were dead, even when we were sinners. So love awakens love. I say that often, but love awakens love and it changes us. Not only can we have freedom, um, not only is freedom found in our intimacy with God, but next, the part I really wanna preach, <laughs> is freedom is walking in submission to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Not only have we been given the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, but the Holy Spirit resides within us in order to sanctify us and to grow us 
and to lead us into, into greater fellowship and to lead us into greater freedom. Look at what Paul says in verse number 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now notice the Spirit's capital S. It's meaning the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Holy Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then again in verse number 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That when the Spirit of God was given to you, that regenerated you, that made you alive to God and to the things of God, that when the Spirit came to reside in you, the Spirit brought a new governing influence into your life. It was like in the, the old Westerns that maybe you grew up watching and some of us, you know, we still maybe watch on Nick and I, it was like a new sheriff came into town, right? The spirit showed up and the new sheriff came into a town that was for goodwill, where he's going to put to rest all of the shooting and the carousing and all the fighting and all of those things. This new sheriff has come into town and he's going to bring peace into the city. The only problem is the old sheriff's still left in town. That's what Paul's saying. And the old sheriff isn't going to leave without a fight. The old sheriff is your flesh, your old disposition, your old corrupt, apathetic, indifferent, cantankerous self that still resides within you. Not only is he living there, but he is, pow he is launching powerful desires in us. There is within every believer, Paul says, a power struggle that's happening every day, every hour, every minute, every second. It's the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the spirit. And Paul's saying some, in this very short passage, Paul is saying some pretty radical things that I want to highlight for us in the minutes that remain. First thing Paul is saying is, Paul says there are three types of human beings. There are three types of people, Paul says here. Number one, there are the unregenerate. Paul doesn't mention them, but it's implied here. Those are the people who have yet to be regenerate, made new by the Holy Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit. And those people live to gratify the flesh. That is it. That's all they care about is themselves. And maybe they'll look like they do good for others, but really they're good for others is usually some hidden motiva motiva motivation, some hidden agenda. They're after power and pleasure and comfort in this life. They're after self and to elevate self. Number two, there is the regenerate. The regenerate who fall back into bondage. They have been set free, but they, do, they don't live free. That's the whole purpose of this sermon series is to know that we've been set free in order to live free. There are those who have the Holy Spirit, but they still are living to gratify the flesh and they grieve the Spirit. That's why Paul says over and over again in this text, if you, if you, if you, a conditional statement, as if you could have the Spirit and not live by the Spirit, and you can't. You live for the flesh and you grieve the spirit and you're still living in a bondage and the fruit of the spirit isn't happening in your life. There's no joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's not, that's, not, that's not you. People go, hey, what do you think about Andy Lawrence? You wouldn't say, hey, he's filled with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You'd say, ah, he's whatever, bitter and angry or resentful or 
hostile or whatever else you may say about him. What's the issue? Even though he may be regenerate, what's the issue? The issue is that he's walking in the flesh and he's grieving the Holy Spirit. And number three, there are those who are regenerate and free. And that's who we wanna be. Amen? It's okay to say amen every now and then. That's who we wanna be, right? You wanna be regenerate and you wanna be free. You wanna experience the fruit of the Spirit. Those who have the Holy Spirit and they, li- and they live by the Spirit and they do not gratify the desires of the flesh. They live by the Spirit and they do not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the first thing is there are three types of humans and you must determine who you are and also who you want to be. Verse number 17 is key. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What Paul's saying here, teaching here, is that your flesh and even your fleshly desires, your fleshly, sinful, corrupt, broken desires are not the true you. That's good news. Highlight that one. If you are in Christ and been made new by Christ, if you, then, the, 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 then the real desires in your heart are the desires to follow Christ. The desires of the flesh, they are foreign. They are alien desires. Even though you've been born with one, the new desires that come from the Spirit are the true you. That's the true you if you are in Christ. The desire for power and for control and to manipulate situations and, the, and, and, to put pa- and to put pleasure above all other things, those desires, those broken desires, those idolatrous desires, those are not the true you. That's good news. To keep you from doing what you really want, the true you wants to live in a way that honors and glorifies God. That's how you know whether you've been regenerate or not. What's your true desire above all other desires? What's your paramount desire with this little life that you've been given, with these very few, be careful, with those, this very few short years that you have to live on this earth, what's your chief desire? If your chief desire above all is to glorify God and to honor God in all things, then chances are you're regenerate. And that's why he says this is your, the true you. The true you is that thing, not your sinful desires. And that's important. That's important because the truth is the enemy has a very thin playbook, right? Kind of like the UK Wildcats yesterday. I mean, we got a pretty thin playbook. I mean, we whipped the cards for those of you that are Cardinals fans. Sorry, not sorry, right? But we had an awful thin playbook, right? We, we, we threw for four yards, that's it. Two passes, one of them was a completion. The rest of the time, we just did a running game. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, it's a game called football. And if you don't know, you're probably better off than the rest of us. So don't feel like, oh, what's he talking about? But it's this game and they throw this thing and they run with it and they try to beat the living pudding out of each other. And it's awesome, right? But our playbook was awful thin. One of three guys is gonna run with the football. It looks like they could have stopped it. They can't. You can't stop Lynn Bowden. That's all there is to it. But still, it was pretty thin. And in the same way, Satan's playbook is awful thin. Here's his game. He tempts you to sin. Whether it's to 
like a member of my family, whether it's to lose your temper or whether it's to lust after a woman or whatever it is, he throws the bait out there of temptation. And then if you sin and you fall prey to it, well, that opens up the secondary. And the secondary play that he loves to run is the play of condemnation, accusation and condemnation. He comes in and tells you some lie about yourself. And now that you've sinned, now God can never forgive you. Now that you've sinned, God doesn't love you. Now that you've sinned, you've done this thing, then, you know, whatever else, it's condemnation. But then there's a third play that he runs, loves to run. It may be his favorite. And it's the play of shame. He comes in and he wants you to feel a sense of shame. See, the difference between shame shame and condemnation is condemnation is based upon what you've done. Shame is based upon who you are. And so what he'll say to you is things like, see, this is what you do just because you're an angry old man, right? This is just what you do. This is who you are. This is the real you. You're, you're the whatever you are, whatever the, the thing is that you've done. Remember Pastor Tony was here last week and there was a time when Pastor Tony did a great deal of counseling in a city where he uh, once served as senior pastor of a church in Glasgow, Kentucky. They did a lot of work with uh, drug rehab um, people and they had a, a, a young man that had come, given his life to the Lord. It's, and this is how the enemy works. The guy had had a, couple of, uh, had a couple of months of sobriety under his belt, right? Been free of drugs, free of alcohol, the enemy loves for us to get a little of what we think is victory. And then he just comes in and drops the people's elbow on us. And that's what he did. Temptation, condemnation, and shame. And this dude just fell off the map. Pastor Tony went after him. Pastor Tony found him, set him down, started talking to him. And this is what the young man said. He said, man, this is just what I do. I'm a druggie. I'm a drunk. I'm an addict. This is just what I do. Listen, my dad was a druggie. My grandfather was a drunk. And this is just what we do. This is just what our family does. This is just, see, see how shame? Like, it, it doesn't matter how many times you've said it in an AA meeting. If Christ is in you, that's no longer who you are. You've now been filled with new desires. You've now been filled with real desires, changed desires. And that's who you are. And that's what Pastor Tony told this young man. He said, son, don't you understand? Like, yes, that's your family bloodline, but you got a new blood has been injected into you. You got new DNA when you received Christ. There's been a change, a fundamental change in you. And that's what Paul wants you to know. The fundamental change is the change of the spirit. We know that we're Christians, not because of the presence of our flesh. Or I'm sorry, we, yeah. We know that we're Christians, not because of the absence of our flesh, but we know that we're Christians because of the, the presence of the Spirit. It's not the absence of the flesh, but it's the presence of the Spirit. Just two more really quickly. Number two, the Spirit is not an impersonal force, but it's just the opposite. He is a real person. The third person of the Trinity residing in you. And this person has desires he has a divine agenda. He has divine direction. Notice the words and language that Paul uses when he talks about the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. It's to highlight the role of the Spirit, that the Spirit is bringing leadership into our lives. He is leading our lives. He's not, a, he's not leading our lives like a pace car 
in the Daytona 500, but rather he's leading our lives like a locomotive that's running on the train. The spirit is the locomotive. We do not follow in our strength, but we are led by his power. So we walk by the spirit means that we, we live by the spirit, keep in step of the spirit. What's he mean by that? Well, he means this, that we stay hooked up to the divine source of power and we go wherever he leads. And I know that can sound mystical and that can sound ambiguous and that can sound something that's out there, ethereal, but let me put some real legs on this thing with this next one. That if he is in leadership, then our role is that of submission to his leadership. Those who are walking by the spirit, who are being led by the spirit, who are walking in congruence with the spirit, what that means is we take the role of humility and submission to the spirit. That we have to bring ourselves under his leadership, under his authority. And let me make it a little more concrete for you than that. That isn't that we're just following this inward voice. It's not just when we're following our intuition. We're not just following our conscience, but what it means concretely is we are submitted to his word. We're submitted to the Bible. We're submitted to the truths of the Bible. We're submitted to the leadership and to the authority and to the sufficiency of the Bible. See, it's possible to study your Bible apart from the Spirit, but it is impossible to know the Spirit apart from the Bible. People study the Bible all the time apart from the work of the Spirit. They study the Bible and they get degrees and they graduate and they know no more about the spirit, no more about God, no more about anything other than they know, might know a lot of theology, but it's never penetrated and changed them inwardly. People can study the Bible apart from the work of the spirit. Now it's not gonna lead to real spiritual fruit because it's a spirit that illuminates God's word and brings it at home in us. But it is impossible to know the spirit apart from the word. That we are called to live submissively under the word of God. And what submission means is that you're willing to lose every argument with God. That you need to say that. That needs to be your attitude. That needs to be your posture of, with God and with his word. Is God, I'm willing to lose every argument I, that, I, that I have with you. I don't want... I don't want to come to you and to have a, an argumentative spirit. I don't want to resist you. Whatever you say, that is what I want to do. I abandon my will. I abandon my desire. And what I want to do is I want to be led by you through your word. Even when I may initially disagree with your word, and every one of us have disagreed with God's word at one time or another, even when I disagree with you, I'm going to submit to you because that's what a submissive heart means. I'm not submitting to you to get something from you. I'm submitting to you because you are God. And submission ultimately is trust. Not just submission in a, in, in a mental sense, but what I'm talking about here is where you move and your submission is now a place of trust, where you trust his hand and you trust his heart and you entrust his intention. See how it's couched in intimacy with God where you know him and you know that he's for you and you know that he has nothing but good for you and he's leading you and he's guiding you from a place of love. And when you know that, then you can submit to him and you can trust in him. 
You have to trust in the leadership and the authority of the spirit through the word. Trust not just in the commands of God, but trust in the promises of God and bring our emotions into harmony and submission to the promises. Don't let fear, don't let fear or condemnation or feelings of rejection and feelings of worry set up shop and build a nest in your head and your heart. But grab a hold of the blood-bought promises and bring your feelings and bring your thoughts into alignment with those promises. That is what he means by keeping in step with the spirit. It's bringing your affections and bringing your spirit into, into alignment with the commands of God and the promises of God. Letting him speak to those. Living in fellowship with God and in submission to his spirit through the finished work of Christ. That is the water in which you have been made. It is the tracks where your heart can speed down the tracks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't just have to guess our way through, that even when something that seems a little ambiguous, that we can, we can understand what you mean through it, that your word gives illumination to us, Lord. And Lord, it's my prayer that as we examine our lives, that we think about our own hearts and uh, the areas where we need to submit, the places where we're in insubordination to you, whether that's in a command we're living in sin, or whether that's in a promise, and we're living in anxiety, we're living in fear. Neither of those two things are freedom. And I pray for the pleasure-seeking, corrupt, cantankerous, anxiety-ridden, worry-filled, control-freak flesh that is, resides in every one of us. And by your power, you would subdue him. That we would, with new and afresh intentions and desires, we would learn to cultivate the spirit and live under his leadership. That we would lay down all of our insubordination and we would fully submit a place of trust and a place of humility to you in this hour. Spirit, do your work what only you can do. We used to sing, have thine own way. Lord, that's what, we're, that's what I'm praying for right now. Have your own way in our hearts. Spirit, move around freely within this congregation, within us and highlight, Lord. Highlight the places where we're in insubordination, the, the places where we're not believing the, the truths of your, of your word, where we're not believing the promises of your word. Lord, there may be some in the room who have yet to be regenerate. Do what only you can do. Because of the great love with which you have loved them, would you raise them from the dead? And as an evidence of their raising of the dead, may they be converted. May they turn from their sin. May they turn towards you. May they publicly profess that through baptism. Lord, may we be present with you in this time. In your name we pray. Amen.